0: But I think that it behooves us to create environments of uncompromising theological faithfulness, of orthodoxy, where we're unmoving in our core theological tenets and not like, oh, you know what? I don't know. You believe what you want to believe. But at the same time, we give people the space to go on the journey of discipleship and to wrestle through those things with accountability and vulnerability with other disciples of Jesus who are also just trying to figure it out.
1: Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 265. I'm your host, Mike Neglia. The voice that you just heard is that of Josh Porter. Josh Porter is the pastor of Van City Church, in Vancouver, Washington. He's the author of a recently published book called Death to Deconstruction, Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of True Rebellion. And he and I have a really great conversation talking about the collaborative sermon prep process that was modeled for him at Bridgetown Church in Portland, and then also has carried into his current ministry in Vancouver. Uh, We also talk about how to deliver sermons that address the doubts or the objections of those that may be in a deconstruction process, and what are the limits and opportunities of the pulpits. We also, most importantly, we talk about some Swedish punk bands and the importance of just quiet faithfulness and being willing to be forgotten rather than remembered for giving in. Hey, while I have your attention, uh, let me give you some really important dates and places. All right, Austin, Texas. We're doing our next in-person training event Friday, June 2nd and Saturday, June 3rd in Calvary, Austin. And then October 27th and 28th, we're coming to Indianapolis, Indiana. Those are our next two dates That are on the calendar for our training events. Uh, We're working on one probably in August in Southern California, but I want you to know those dates, Uh, get connected to us on social media, find us on expositorscollective.com, sign up for our email list. We're going to be giving more details and sign up information and who are the speakers, who are the coaches. They're going to be in Austin and Indianapolis. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Listen, the month of January was just like a record-breaking month when it came to podcast downloads. And I know that there's a lot of options out there. There's a lot of encouraging and educational podcasts. And and listen, guys, I listen to a lot of them and you probably do too. Thank you so much for building us into your weekly rhythms. I'm so glad that this podcast and the broader ministry of Expositors Collective is helping you in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. Here's my conversation with Josh Porter. All right. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective podcast. I'm excited to be speaking with uh, Pastor Josh Porter. Josh, good morning. How are you?
0: I'm great, man. Thanks for having me.
1: I've I've been looking forward to it. Hey, I'm not good at small talk, so I'm just going to get straight to it. Uh, Josh, what was your first sermon that you ever preached? When's the first time you taught the Bible in public?
0: Oh man, it was about eight or nine years ago and it was a passage in Mark in which Jesus walks on water.
1: Okay, sounds yeah. good.
0: Yeah, I was working for a, a church in Portland, Oregon, and we were teaching through the uh, gospel of Mark. I was not on staff as a pastor or a teacher of any kind I was the videographer for a network of mega churches, um, which meant that I had, you know, I made short films about like community groups and Easter. (laughs) Yeah.
1: The the Uh, announcement video guy.
0: No, we didn't do that kind of thing, but it was, it, I mean, I, I don't mean to over-glamorize it. It was very kind of nuts and bolts kind of job, but anytime, because there was like a several, it was uh, like a campus model of church, so there were several locations, and to keep other churches abreast as to what was going on in the greater kind of church environment, uh, I would go and make these little short films, and then they would play them, at the various locations about like, hey, look what these guys down the street are doing or look what this community group did, that kind of thing. And I had befriended the pastor uh, of the church and he and I had a shared uh, theological sensibility. We liked the same kinds of authors and, and were interested in the same kinds of topics. And I think it surprised him that the video guy was... Um, so interested in the- theology. That doesn't mean that I was any kind of prodigy or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It just, we, we kept the conversation going. And he asked if I would like to um, be, I guess, mentored by him to become a teacher. And I wasn't the only person. He was kind of assembling a little group and I said, yeah, absolutely. So I hung around with him for a couple of years meeting routinely and he would Um, he was, he's a very organized fellow. So he, you know, was very thought out and very thorough and he would at each meeting be like, okay, so here's how you do this. Here's a very practical, um, in, in kind of, uh, you know, download of information on what it takes to teach the Bible, at least according to this guy's sensibilities, but he was my favorite Bible teacher. So I was, you know, in, in my mind, I was getting to learn from the person that most inspired me to learn from the scripture. So, I was really into it. And then at some point during that process, I had not completed the, you know, formal training or anything, but he asked if I would like to teach on a, on a Sunday at church, uh, which was terrifying. And I had done kind of some sermon like material at like the college group or something like that. You know, they would, they would say, Hey Josh, do you want to come talk about this thing? Anything that would kind of sound like it was in my wheelhouse or this is Josh's hobby horse. He can come talk about this. But that was my, the first time that I actually like for Sunday church formally stood on stage and was like, open your Bibles to the gospel of Mark, you know, and and let's teach through the topic and, uh, terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Most things like that don't, um, haven't given me pause. You know, I've done music and I've written and I don't usually feel nervous about any of those performative type things, but this was terrifying.
1: Okay couple questions was first off, was the pastor in the room or was he, he like, on? was he on holidays? Were you feeling? No, he or?
0: was, he was right there in the front row staring at me.
1: Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that is great on paper. How did it feel? Oh,
0: it was wonderful. It okay. was honestly one of the, the more formative moments of my life. He stood with me before I went up and he, you know, he encouraged me and he prayed over me. And then afterward, I don't honestly remember. I haven't listened back to that particular. As you know, as a method of practice, I tend to listen back to, to teachings to kind of refine um, my skill, I guess, or you know, my technique, if you want to call it that. Uh, it's a painful process, but I, I feel like it's necessary to improve. But I did not. Um, I'm sure I did at the time. I probably listened to it once after it was over, but I don't remember exactly how it went or. Um, I I remember that it felt really good and that, um, it did, it didn't feel like a disaster. I don't remember if it was a great sermon or not. I'm sure, I'm sure that it couldn't have been remarkable. It was probably like passable or something like that at best. But afterwards he took me aside, you know, and he, he actually like kind of spoke a, a blessing over me to use churchy language and put his hand on my shoulder and said that, you know, I see this in you. I think that this is who you can be and, um, I want to help you. So in that sense, it was, uh, remarkable to have him there. I, I didn't feel particularly stressed out about his presence. If anything, that to me was, you know, like how the kid gets excited when he sees his parents at the piano recital or something like that.
1: Yeah. And, and who was this pastor?
0: <clears throat> uh, his name's John Mark Comer. Wow. He's a pastor in Portland. He's wrote a bunch of books and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. It's, it's great to honor those that are investing in others.
0: Totally. Yep. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And okay. So that's, that's great. And then from there you were eventually sent out from that church to pastor and to plant a new one so that the blessing came true.
0: Yes, it did. It came to fruition. Yeah. The, you know, I think that the thing that most affirmed that it had not been so disastrous that I should stop doing it forever was that they asked me to do it again. Um, And I'm sure at the time, and this is not like false modesty or anything, I'm sure that it wasn't like, he's so good, we have to have him do more stuff. I'm sure it was more like, you know, he's got potential and we can help him, but the only way to do it, um, you know, someone once said that learning to teach is kind of like learning to play a violin in public. So you have to just get up there and be like, rawr, 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 and eventually it starts to sound a little better. Yeah, I'm sure that they collectively as a team, there was a whole teaching team and there were elders and all that. And they probably said, you know, we, we see potential here and he's just going to have to do it more to get better. So let's give him more opportunities. And, and every time I did, everyone was really encouraging. They also gave me lots of um, feedback. You know, one of the first things I learned in that uh, apprentice cohort of teachers was, you have to have thick skin to do this well and that to do it well. Um, I, and this is something that I believe and teach my students of teaching now that it has to happen. Or I guess personally, according to my personal philosophy, I'm happy to, you know, have somebody disagree with me. Um, it always works best with a team, a team that speaks into the process, speaks into the teaching and, you know, offers accountability, encouragement, feedback, Um, so there were always people that came to me afterward and they were so generous and gracious and, oh my gosh, this was so good. And it was specific, you know, it wasn't the kind of like, wow, you're just the best. It was like, this was really great. I loved how you did this. You're really good at this thing. But then there was also, this didn't work. I don't think that the way you put this was the best. Um, maybe try this, you know, and those were things that were had to do with technique as well as, you know, theology and that kind of thing. So It was constantly in the feedback loop of the team, but they kept asking me to do it. So I figured, you know, like if I was really um, had no hope whatsoever and they, you know, they cared a lot about the craft of teaching. It wasn't the kind of thing where they're like, oh, you know, Bob who sweeps the hallways, he just has a really good heart. So let's just put him on stage. They, They really demonstrated a tremendous concern for the integrity of teaching, the craftsmanship of teaching, the quality of teaching. Um, So I assumed that uh, they saw something even, you know, even if I didn't see exactly what they saw, they saw something there. And eventually um, I did become a pastor at that church, became a teaching pastor at that church, and they asked me to plant a church as well. So
1: so Josh, the video guy, has a good heart, Mm -hmm. but that's not why you got the pulpit.
0: No, you know, and I don't, you know, in the beginning they... Uh, it was really unconventional. No one had taught at on stage at the church who wasn't a pastor who or who wasn't on track to become a pastor who was kind of like a, a pastoral intern or some kind of thing like that. And I don't think that it was because they're like, man, Josh's disposition is so pastoral. In fact, all the way up until the time that I planted the church and was a pastor, um, the critique that I've received, and it's a fair critique, is that I do not have the quintessential pastoral personality, meaning I'm not by wiring a really gregarious, like smiling at the door to shake everyone's hand, remember everyone's name and oh, how's little Billy doing, you know, and kissing the babies and stuff. I'm kind of dry by nature and sarcastic. And um, I don't think aloof is uh, an accurate word, but that's how some people perceive um, people who are a little more uh, reserved or quiet from the outset I genuinely like people. It's not a put on and I genuinely enjoy the company of people. So it's not like, Oh, I'm introverted. I don't want to be around, you know, or anything like that. Um, but I'm not that guy who's, uh, you know, Oh wow. What a pastoral personality. In fact, when they asked me to plant the church, he said, the first thing you need to do is find somebody who is like that Mm -hmm. so that they can help you round out that kind of personality spectrum.
1: Yeah. Every Paul needs a Barnabas. Yeah.
0: Yep. old Paul and Barney. That was us. (laughs) Um,
1: That's, that's wonderful. And I I'd love to ask some more questions about that whole idea of like the team, um, the team, I guess you emphasize the team for giving critique or, or feedback, but uh, from what I know about, about Bridgetown, there also is a team that goes into the the sermon on the front end. So Mm -hmm. it's somewhat of a collaborative process before it's delivered. And then even after it's delivered, as you mentioned, there is that um, feedback loop that take not not loop that feedback process that yep. takes place. Um, have you adopted that same model of kind of team preparation as well as team critique?
0: Yeah, it's the only model I've ever known. So I was taught that, um, and you know, and brought into that process where the teaching team at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, they would submit the teaching you know days prior to Sunday. And everyone who was on the team, the team consisted of, um, the other pastors on staff, the elders of the church. And then there were a few kind of outside consultants, like a trustworthy professor down at the, the seminary, down the street who taught most of the pastors. And they would all give commentary on the teaching, uh, encouragement like this, this is great. This works yeah. good. Maybe say this twice. And, um, Critique as in, like, oh, geez, this is not the best, or I would change this, or maybe this isn't the appropriate time to address this particular topic. Um, Ranging anywhere from, like, doctrinal critique all the way down to, oh, I just don't know if this is the best delivery for this particular thing. And... Then it was you know, incumbent on the teacher of the week to go through everyone's comments, deal with each of them, adjust the teaching accordingly, reach out to anyone who need necessitated extra conversation, like, hey, help me understand what you were saying here and, and how to tweak that well. And by the time that I was brought into actually teaching, that's the first thing that I ever had to do was finish a manuscript, send it to everyone, have everyone comment on it, go back. And, uh, and so that's the model I took to my church. And that's the model that we use here. We have a team of um, men and women who teach at fancy. I'm I'm the primary person. I'm up there most weeks out of the year, but there's another pastor here who teaches. And there's a couple of um, kind of teaching apprentices that I have um, men and women who teach occasionally who I'm, you know, trying to sort of uh, pay it forward on what was done for me Mm. as a teacher. Mm. And they do the same thing. They, they send the manuscript. We all comment on it. Most of the time, it's inconsequential commentary. It just requires tiny little adjustments because we have a rapport and yeah. a lot of relational equity, and we kind of understand what the other person is saying. We all have a lot of agreement on core theological issues, and we know what's appropriate and inappropriate to, you know, when it's appropriate or inappropriate to bang our own drum and that kind of thing. Um, and every now and then, it's uh, even just this last week, there was something that I had written in a teaching that one of our overseers of the church took issue with. I had to talk to him separately, talk to everyone else and make sure it wasn't just one person's gripe and that everyone else was in agreement. I changed yeah. the, the, the item accordingly accordingly. And then taught it. And I love that pro. I've, you know, talked to other pastors like, oh my God, that just seems like it would take so long. And it's so, um, you have everyone's, you know, so many cooks in the kitchen. These people aren't writing the teaching and they're not, you know, like quibbling over every single thing that you're saying. I prefer it, even as somebody who artistically, I realize this sounds pretentious, like, um, I do not do well collaboratively a lot, a lot uh, creatively. You know, I like to kind of have unilateral control over my creative wares, but um, when you're teaching Bible and theology, even though it is a creative, um, not purely, but it is creative in nature. I, the way I always say it in our um, class where we bring new people into communities is yeah, we tell them we have a teaching team, that we're all in agreement, that people know what's being said, that I'm not like the figurehead over the movement. Um, I say, you know, if I, the way I see it, if I'm going down, they're going down with me because mm-hmm. they all looked at it. They all approved of it. No one can yeah. say, what the heck did he say up there? Unless I just go totally rogue, which I don't. So I I love that model and I can't recommend it enough to, to other teachers.
1: Yeah, it's a model that I used to do and have sort of fallen out of, uh, not because of some giant disagreements with it, Uh It it was just a matter of uh, maybe you could help, or I don't know. (laughs) Um, I'd send it out to you know the elders, uh, women's ministry director, like other leaders in the church, and would would get just a bunch of kind of thumbs ups back. Like, Mm -hmm. looks good, you know, great, cool, and uh, and then say, oh, okay. I mean, I like the idea of the fact that you know, as I then step into the pulpit on Sunday, it's already been you know. Thumbs up by everybody. I know that it's not just me riffing up there, but like this is accurate. This also encompasses like the heart of our church right now. I, I could even say this is what we believe. And actually, it actually is true. It's what we believe. Um, but uh yeah, so I kind of wasn't getting a whole lot of pushback or feedback to begin with. And then and then I just kind of lost the habit of finishing the sermon early enough to get it to them, you know, to actually have be useful. So it went from Thursday to then Friday, and then sometimes it wasn't even finished till like Sunday, 7am. So uh, I fell out of it and it's been a practice that I miss. And even hearing you talk about it's kind of evoking something in me. New year, maybe I should get back into it.
0: Yeah, I, I can see all that. And there are honestly, there are times when the I don't mean to celebrate it as if it's without any, uh, you know, complications of any kind. There are often weeks where the feedback is so, you know, neutrally positive. <laughs> I do that sounds like a contradiction, but it's so like um, tepid where yeah. people are like, looks, looks good. I'm yeah. excited to be there tonight <laughs> that I'm like, well, this is not really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do think that, like you said, that that there is a kind of reassurance and being like, well, I sent it to everyone, so I can say with integrity that I'm doing my best to submit myself to the process of accountability. And I think that long term, um, it is a almost like a safeguard, a preventative measure um, to protect ourselves. Where I don't, I don't have personally the kind of um, demeanor or I guess the, uh, disposition that lends itself to like kind of tyranny per se, you know, like I, I don't, I don't really want to become the dictator of my church. That doesn't sound appealing. That sounds kind of crappy, but I realize that that's, especially nowadays in the wake of many great mega church scandals and fallen pastors, that that's something that people are wary of. And I was talking to my spiritual director about like, um, He uh, is a dude who's been a pastor for decades and was um, one of the founders of what eventually became the Acts uh, 29. Is that what it's called? Acts 29 movement that eventually gave way to Mars Hill and that scandal and the conversations that people have been having over the last couple of years about the fall of that church network. And, uh, but he had left it a long time before any of that happened for those reasons. He's like, Hey, listen, I see these things. They're going to become problems later. No one listened to him. So he, you know, went a different route. And, uh, I I was having a conversation with him about like, I don't you know, like how do we as pastors protect ourselves from, and our churches more so from, from us, from the, you know, us becoming these people who, um become tyrants and I'm you know, I'm being kind of um reductive, but who are who become that kind of personality, the uh who can't be told no, who rule with an iron fist and there's no accountability and now it becomes this huge um scandal. They I doubt that they go around saying, like, man, I'm a tyrant. It's so nice to rule this thing and I'm not gonna listen to anyone, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. So how do we make sure, like, how do we safeguard ourselves from those things? And, uh, you know, he said a lot of things that seem really obvious to me, but I guess aren't obvious to, uh, to everyone in that, like, you you know, you set yourself up with accountability. You surround yourself with people who, you know, will say no to you if, if that's important, when, and if that's important or who will call you on your stuff, you, you know, like things like submitting your teaching, I think long-term, even if there's just years of people saying yeah, it looks mostly good. Um, it's part of that overall environment in which you're submitting yourself to accountability from other people, which is a huge thing. You know, if one day I or you ever got up there and did say something that was totally kooky, um, and, you know, a few of us get up there and say something that we know is totally kooky just to say it and cause a stir, Yeah, uh, you know, that we could say, Uh, well, I, I gave it to everyone and, and we agreed on this and then we would go into that together if it seemed totally kooky to the church. But if ever I got up there, you know, if I wasn't participating in team and there were years of, eh, it's mostly fine, go for it. And then I get up there and do say something crazy. And I I was a part of, um, kind of loosely part of a church when I was the video guy where something like that happened. Somebody got on stage and said, and we're going to do this and this and this. And everyone was kind of like, oh, what the heck? That's news to us. That's kind of like... Uh, a huge, huge thing to say. It wasn't necessarily like uh, heretical or something like that. It was just about the direction of the church and what the um, church was kind of going after philosophically. So creating systems of accountability, even if they seem a little mundane, um, I think overall, over time, is just a worthwhile measure, at least in my mind.
1: Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And as much as we talk about equality amongst elders or you know parody, uh, what, parity what p a r i t y not p r o d y um like if there's not any actual collaboration involved or if you know you know the the first among equals uh tends to operate just kind of like first and very yes. much like not like equals um yes. yeah it's, it's anyway i'm convicted and uh, check back with me next year. Hopefully this will be something that I <laughs> that I implement even as just, yeah, a small I don't want to call it a token gesture, but as a small step of of getting back into uh speaking on behalf of a group rather than speaking as the the sole representative of the Lord's voice.
0: Yes, it is a it is a gesture of willingness to be held accountable, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, this is a whole different direction, but yeah, cool. Thanks, thanks for that. I appreciate the uh, the counsel, the guidance, the uh, the direction that I've uh, I've just received. Um, You have mentioned that, yeah. So that's kind of the front end, and then on the back end, you got like specific uh, critique. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, I think that Christians tend to be quite general in their critique. You know, generally positive or generally negative, if, if negative at all, it usually is like, oh yeah, that really blessed me. You know, thanks. Thanks so much. Um, Do you mind, can you remember what was some of the, the actual specific critiques that you got?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think again, because my personality doesn't lend itself to the, you know, the typical, not even just pastoral gregarious personality, but usually church planters and often pastors in general have kind of like a type A driven personality. Um, you know, going to seminary, I often felt like an alien cause everybody was uh, almost sounded like corporate talk. They'd be like, here's the thing I'm going to do and it's going to be different and everything. And, you know, yeah. I was just kind of reclined in my chair being like, I don't know, whatever. Um, so I get up there to teach and my delivery is not like the other pastors and not, and not necessarily in a good way. Not like, Oh man, wow. He's really reinventing the mold. It just, sounded very, you know, dry and candid. And most Mm -hmm. of my jokes, um, were sarcastic. Uh, so the first round of feedback I had was with, you know, like afterward, I, I remember specifically on Monday taking a walk with like three different pastor and mentor friends of mine who were all there. And we, we took around, walk around downtown Portland. It was summertime and They were like, hey, this was really good. I think that you're going to be great at this, you know, maybe utilize this aspect of your teaching that went well in the future. Um, And then they would say, so here's ways that you can improve. And it was interesting because some of them ended up changing over time. What I mean by that is the the. Comments on the use of humor in my teachings were the first things that were not necessarily critiqued, but they were cross-examined. Yeah, Um, they were like, "You're so dry um, that our audience and our congregation doesn't know when you intend to be funny." Um, And and it wasn't because oh they're so dumb and they're just out Mm -hmm. of they don't get humor. And I don't even think it was necessarily because my jokes were so crappy. I think that it was. No one else teaches this way. So you're coming into kind of a spot that's been kept warm by other teachers whose humor is entirely different. And it's a huge adjustment. It's not just like it's a little different. It's just really, really different. So they were saying, so maybe, you know, try to uh, at least produce an affectation of more traditional humor which I was totally happy. You know, at this point I was just like, I'll, you know, I really want to learn. I want to grow. I'm happy to try anything you want me to try. And so the next time around, I, um, I tried some of the more like, "hoo hoo," you know, like Krusty the Clown humor and, uh, and also inevitably couldn't help but kind of sink back into some of my old habits as well. But since I had taught recently and I think the, um, our people had warmed to me just a little bit uh, the, my traditional humor, my default humor was more successful than my, you know, kind of, um, put on humor. And afterwards the pastors were both kind of like, you know, last time we told you to kind of ham it up a little bit and it just doesn't work. It seems insincere. Everybody knows that's not what you sound like now. And I guess we just needed more time to understand like your approach. Now we do understand it. So that was some of the technique stuff that they gave me. And then of course there were lots of, you know, um, I tend to be a provocateur by nature. So I had, um, I had put stuff into my teaching that was, again, it was seen by everyone. So I'd already cleaned a lot of it out, but then I think some of it, even if on paper, it communicates a certain kind of way. Once you get on stage and actually say these things, your tone, your disposition, the way that you, you know, body language communicates something very different. So there were things like, Hey, you know, that you were maybe overly sensitive about this thing. You might've been too hard on this thing. This just wasn't the time or place to get in, go that hard on that particular topic because it wasn't what the text was about. Hmm. And these were all things that were all communicated to me with such grace, but with such candid clarity, you know, that that there were, they weren't like kind of tripping over themselves to not offend me or not hurt my feelings. And I think that, you know, young teachers are um, now put in this terrible predicament with there's such a generation of fragility that to be told that you have done anything poorly (laughs) when you especially when you have aspirations to kind of vocationally seize some kind of opportunity. There's this um, extreme trepidation about Hey, you know, like th- you suck at this. You need to get better at this. Not like you suck as a person. You're terrible, but um having like a a, a master apprentice relationship where someone can say, if you want to be great, you have to do this. And this is bad, so do it better. You know, like, almost like a piano teacher that's like, "Nope, wrong note. Nope, wrong note." And now there's more like a, and you describe it well. This also happens in church circles where there's such a um A tendency to encourage at the expense of you know actual sincere critique that could help us grow. That we just say, "Oh well, you did such a good job." Especially when you're like a new teacher trying to, you know, like people they rightly assume that you do need you're fragile. You need encouragement more than you will later. You know, I now I don't need every single week for people to be like, "Wow, what a great job." but, uh, those really clear critiques of not just, you know, uh, little foibles that I had or little missteps that I already knew I had made. Oh, you messed up this word. Oh yeah, I know I did. I realized that afterward, but like this technique is not so great. Try this technique instead, learn to do this. Don't say these things, um, were massively influential in, you know, my trajectory as a teacher and, and and honestly, it sets me up. It sets teachers up to be in a better position to receive outrage <laughs> from people that hear our our sermons. Anybody who's given enough sermons knows that even if you're the you know most gentle teacher in the world, somebody's going to be upset by something you say at some point, and they're and they're going to let you know. So that's just part of the that comes with the job, the territory.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yes, it sure does. <laughs> It sure does. Hey, so let's let's talk about um a book that you've recently published. Uh it's called Death to Deconstruction, Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. Uh, we're in a kind of a deconstructing uh moment right now. You actually call it a a fad. So it's very popular amongst you know people our age that have come through maybe the same uh church uh patterns and 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 so there's a lot of people that are quote-unquote deconstructing or actually deconverting. Um, This book really addresses that, I think, quite well in a personal way through kind of a memoir-type thing, but also addressing some of the issues and some of the reasons and giving like good reasons why um, faithfulness is still a valid option or actually is the true act of rebellion. How can teachers and preachers communicate some of this content in ways that actually engages with those who are maybe are on their way out the door or in their hearts are drifting towards the door?
0: Well, I think that the answer that I am finding is a little counterintuitive. And I realize it sounds hypocritical because I wrote a whole book on deconstruction, but talking about deconstruction is important. It has its place. And, um, you know, I think that, I sat down to write a book that was very different. I was just going to write like a the- theology book with clever arguments against the classic gripes against Christianity amongst deconstructionists and found that that you know, project was kind of untenable. Those books already exist. So I ended up writing something that was more narrative and memoir driven. Um, and the, the gripes that I've gotten about the book from the deconstructionist audience – um most of whom haven't read the book uh they don't like the name and because they you know they they argue oh well deconstruction is a good thing deconstruction saved my life and how you don't know anything about deconstruction you've never ever a, actually, actually ever walked through the pain of deconstruction and then you know you read the first page of the book and you're like oh never mind this is a story <laughs> about this guy's painful deconstruction um And then I've had people telling me, it's like, yeah, but I don't believe, you know, it's like, that's not my story. So your story is invalid because deconstruction means so many different things to so many different people. Yeah. Um, And I've got, I've had conversations with people who are not just doubting, they've already deconverted. They're in the deconstructionist movement. And, uh, you know, a f- few of them have warmed to the book. They liked it. And some of them just like it like creatively They you know, they like it as a, a work of art less than, um, it really brought them around back around to Christianity. And, and I've had conversations with people who were fully out the door and, um, and the ideas in the book have helped them, uh, reopen their imagination to the possibility of following Jesus Um, but everyone is defining deconstruction differently. And to some of them, they're using the word deconstruction the way I use the word spiritual formation. They just mean the messy, complicated process of learning how to follow Jesus as you mature over time, which inevitably involves doubt and questions and wrestling and throwing out old theology, developing new theology, that kind of thing. Um, Others of them use it as like uh, the way we, you know, one might use the term in something like critical theory, uh, which is more like, you know, an inherent uh, uh, allergy to institutions, especially institutions that have power. And, you know, at least in the West, in America, the church, the evangelical church is seen as one of those, you know, institutionalized power structures, um, that has, that is guilty of things like oppression and violence and not, again, not all untrue. So that, if you're talking about like getting out of that, well, then of course, deconstruction is great and it's important. Is that what you mean? Death to deconstruction as in, we should all just be subservient to, you know, like Christian nationalism and racism and things like that. So everyone's, you know, reacting to that word which I'd define in the you know the first chapter or second chapter of the book or something like that, at least according to the purposes of the book. So all that to say that talking about deconstruction um, is so hopelessly complicated and nuanced, depending on who's in your particular church. My church is made up mostly of millennials and Gen Zs. You know we have a lot of young families. Most of the people here are younger than me at this point. We have uh, uh, honestly, I can count on like two hands, the amount of people who are, um, you know, gray hairs. So, uh, generationally, I'm talking to a group of people who's even in a different place than, than I was and am. They didn't, they didn't grow up in the eighties. They didn't grow up with, you know, nineties evangelicalism. They are reacting to more of the like, uh, Trump America evangelicalism and the, the, uh, outworking of that. Um, So it's, it really requires a lot of uh, attunement to the sensibility of your community, less concern for the greater conversation. That's why, you know, like I wrote the book and then the overseers of the church were like, we'd like you to, you know, actually teach through the material in the book as well. You should do a teaching series. And um, I said, oh, okay. It felt a little strange because the book, is already there. If you you know, you want to read it, you can read it. And then the teaching series inevitably became material that's completely different from the book. I didn't teach anything from the book. I didn't teach like concept through concept. I didn't bring up like the major concepts in the book um, because I think that the book is helpful in its way. It's more of a broad strokes, um, big picture kind of thing across the church with a capital C. And then I want to like come down from 30,000 feet to, you know, ground level and talk to my people in my church as, you know, brothers and sisters and families um, about what it means for us to follow Jesus faithfully. And what that becomes, I think, is um, the pursuit of giving people a legitimate space to wrestle honestly through what it means to follow Jesus faithfully. I think that More and more as I have conversations with people, especially who are in our church, but not just in our church, you know, conversations with people who are reading the book around the world and that kind of thing. um, It's true what, you know, statisticians have found. I read this study when I was doing research for the book that has really, really um, stuck with me where um, I believe it was a, a woman who polled, you know, it was a really generous sample size and she was looking for common threads amongst young, uh, American Christians who grew up in a time and place kind of similar to where I did and who had stayed Christian. Mm-hmm. And she was looking for what was it that makes them unique in kind of the era of deconstruction. And there were several things, but one of those factors was that they had, um, at least six or seven adults in their life who followed Jesus faithfully and who were honest about their struggles following Jesus faithfully, which is really remarkable to me because that's essentially just saying like a small group or a community or they were part of a church environment. Um, And it was amazing to me that they did not say there were six or seven adults in their life who did not have a moral failure. They were six or seven adults in their life who um, never wavered in their dedication to the way of Jesus in any way it was six or seven adults in their life who followed Jesus and who were honest about their struggles following Jesus. So I think that, you know, often I say these things to my my church that I think maybe are a given because I've already had years of struggling through my own wrestlings and doubt and Um, So I I think that I'm pretty honest and pretty candid about those things. I'm pretty honest and pretty candid about my current questions and struggles and doubts and things that bother me in the text and things that um, I haven't resolved yet. And they'll come up to me and say, like, I did, you know, I I did not know we had permission to to grow like this together um, where there there is space to wrestle and ask questions. And, you know, maybe they grew up in an environment similar to mine where doubt was akin to faithlessness uh, or questions were akin to sinfulness. And if you really, you know, believed, if you really loved God, you would just, you know, shut, shut up with all the questions and all the doubts and all the honest, sincere wrestling and just kind of get in line and, uh, and work it out, you know, Uh, fake it till you make it kind of thing. So I think providing people with an honest environment where They can ask questions, they can wrestle, but they don't have to stay there. That's the other important side of that coin is that, you know, people come up to me. This is a story that I've been telling a lot in the wake of the book release. There's a guy in our church who came up to me after a gathering and was deeply conflicted. This is somebody who wasn't just like popped in for the evening. He's been part of our you know, community for a long time. He's in a community group, all that kind of stuff. And he was like, do I have to believe that Jesus literally came back to life um, physically in a body to be a Christian. Cause he's, you know, he's a product of a post enlightenment era and supernaturalism is really difficult for him. And he wasn't like cynical or, you know, mean spirited about it. He just genuinely is having just an existential mm-hmm. intellectual crisis over the idea of this. Like usually dead people don't come back to life, he says. So that seems really hard for him to believe, which I think if the, anyone's being honest, that's a legitimate, uh observation. That, raises that a good it, point c- there, yes. Yeah, he raises a great point. And so I I sat with him, you know, and he was really broken up about it and I'm like, "Look, man, uh the answer to your question is is yes." To be a Christian, you must believe that Jesus came back to life. This has been at the heart of the Christian movement for 2000 years. It's in all the creeds. Um it's, you know, in the scriptures itself and Paul, you know, if if Jesus if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless, all that kind of stuff. So yes, uh, unfortunately, you do have to believe that. But that doesn't mean you have to go anywhere, be here, be with us, work through this with us. I'm happy to sit with you. I'm happy to talk with you. So I think that those are the two things. Um, There's not like it meant to be an illustration of me like, oh man, look at how I nailed it. I, it's more an illustration of this young man who's like uh, in a place where um, you're being told this is what we believe and th- that's uncompromising, but it's being communicated with the grace to go on a journey and figure that out. Not to say like, dude, get your soul together. You don't want to, you know what I mean? Like pray this with me right now and maybe you'll come to faith. And I did, of course, I prayed with him and I mm-hmm. talked to him and, and we're still in conversation. But churches, I think, and you know, I don't presume to speak for the needs of every individual community. I know that they're all different and, and unique in, in um, what the season of life and the stage of the people in them. But I think that it behooves us to create environments of uncompromising theological faithfulness, um, of orthodoxy, where we're um, uh, unmoving in our core theological tenets and not like, oh, you know what, I don't know, you believe what you want to believe. But at the same time, we give people the space to go on the journey of discipleship and to wrestle through those things with accountability and vulnerability with other disciples of Jesus who are also just trying to figure it out.
1: Yeah. In, in what I was, I think some people having a conversation with that church member, with that community group attendee, and you listen, I got questions about if Jesus actually rose from the dead, like, isn't, it might feel like the more empathetic, the more kind and friendly thing is to be like, Hey, listen, man, we all got doubts. We, you know, I got doubts about this. You have doubts about that. Um, but I do appreciate that uncompromising orthodoxy. And this is not a peripheral issue, too. This is pretty pretty core. Yeah, this is the one Corinthians <laughs> 15 stuff. Yeah. Um, but so I, I do appreciate that. And even with the with the sensitivity and even with the being honest about your wrestlings, as you said, is a valuable thing to say, like, and there's certain things that actually aren't really up for us to to wrestle with. Like we we allow this truth to wrestle us into submission. There's other things about The way that the Earth was created, the way that it will end one day, Um, and there's other issues. But like, I appreciate and really want to applaud, I guess, just that that core commitment to orthodoxy. Which, yeah, I think
0: we've been given this weird paradigm, or and especially um, people younger than you and I, in which um, kind of an uncompromising core value. Uh, cannot be communicated graciously with room for conversation where it's either one thing or the other. Either you're um, open to gracious dialogue and therefore not settled mm. in a thing that mm. you believe. Yeah. Or you are settled in a thing you believe and therefore not open to a gracious dialogue. And, uh, you see that in the bleed over into even, you know, more controversial, culturally sensitive topics about like things like sexuality or gender, um, the nature of uh, the scriptures that you, like you said, the age of the earth or that, that kind of thing where, um, The idea becomes, oh, so you're settled in what you think about that, then you must be mean-spirited or vicious or not open to any kind of conversation whatsoever and lost the... Um, the gracious paradigm for being able to say, I just believe this. I believe it to the core of my being. Of course, I know that I can be wrong about anything because I'm a, you know, a finite, fallible human being, but I believe, I'm uh, convinced, I'm settled in my belief, and I'm open to gracious, generous dialogue, even with ideas that are totally contrary to mine, I can I can believe them with conviction, and I can hear from other people and wrestle with their questions. They can wrestle with mine. I think creating church environments where that's a possibility is kind of crucial.
1: Yeah, it's okay, church environments. So, uh, you know, asking about how can we as preachers create places that are, you know, on the one hand safe, but on the other hand also um, inviting for those that might be on their way out the door. There are certain things that the pulpit can do. And there's certain things the pulpit can't do. Uh, there's limitations, I think, Too yep. our community groups, the cultures that we, you know, the things that we allow to exist in our church, that has a big influence on how people feel welcome or not. But like from the pulpit, what, what have you done or what can we do from the pulpit? Again, it's limited, but it's also powerful.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and I think that I'm still learning the limitations of the pulpit and I'm still learning the uh, unfortunate power of the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's the classic thing that many teachers are told when they take up the pursuit of teaching that as the leaders go, so go the church yeah. or, you know, the other old adage is uh, a haze in the pulpit, a fog in the pews, uh, the power of communication from a pastor or teacher to a church congregation can scarcely be overstated in a certain sense. But then, in another sense, it only goes so far in creating long-lasting culture of community. Um, they're symbiotic for sure. In that, you know, if I make it my business, so let's say your church value that is deeply important to you is a sense of hospitality. You want people to feel welcomed when they walk in the door. Um, I think that something like that begins in the uh, in the pulpit or at the pulpit in a certain sense because. You have to teach people a theology of hospitality, why it's important, why it matters, walk them through that, grow together, practicing, um, uh, trying to just tell everyone, everyone be nice to each other and we'll teach about it later as a little cart before the horse kind of thing. But at the same time, um, you can talk about hospitality for an eight-week vision series of your church and it won't force anyone to become hospitality. You know, coercion is not a fruit of the spirit, one of my friends likes to say. Um, That becomes modeled through practice and through accountability in community. Um, So I think that there's, uh, you know, I don't usually like the kind of um, stuff that you can uh, chart out on a graph or things for systems of leadership in church because it feels so corporate to me, but uh, there is value in a kind of, infrastructure that connects the ideas that are communicated in the pulpit down to, you know, the second and third tiers of leadership all the way down into, you know, random Joe or Jane churchgoer that comes into the church on a Sunday night. So, I mean, there's lots of different ways to do it. Um, Our way is not the best way by any means or not necessarily the best way. It's the way that works best for us. You know, we have overseers of the church or what many people call elders of the church, we have deacons, um, we have the staff and pastors, uh, we have community leaders, and then we have people in communities, and then we have people who just show up, they're not necessarily in communities or leading or serving in any uh, meaningful sense, but they're there, they're trying to figure things out. And we create systems in which these groups and tiers of leadership and teams are in communication with one another, working the things out that are shared at the pulpit down into the communities and then back again. so for example, we do a teaching series each one of those teachings comes with a weekly um, curriculum of practices for the community groups that are written by either myself or one of the, our pastor of communities usually writes them. And so the communities are meeting together throughout the week. They open up a thing where they debrief what was said in the teaching, have a conversation about it. And then there's actually guided practices like, okay, it's about prayer. So we're going to pray like this. We're going to try this kind of prayer. There's homework to do. We'll come back together next week. Everyone asks each other how it went. Now the community leaders then meet monthly or bimonthly with our pastor of communities and they talk, how's it going? How did the practices work? Did this work? This didn't, this went well. Okay, great. We'll improve upon that. Thank you for helping us. Um, They're going back into their communities and sharing that with those people as well so that there's not this kind of like detached system in which I get up on stage, say a bunch of random things. We hope it works. We hope something grows. And then we learn, you know, painfully over the year of of that particular church life that, and eh, no one really did anything. No one learned much about prayer at all. Um, there's a kind of real time community feedback loop um, in which we're understanding, okay, well, this isn't landing. How can we help? And. What you find is that because the needs of each individual church is so are so unique and so nuanced based on who is in that church and what season of life and stage of discipleship they're in, Um, there are certain things that we don't know exactly why, but they just take, you know, like you get up and you teach a thing and it's formative and it changes you. There's a palpable sense of formation in the whole community. Wow. That was really meaningful for us. We really grew a lot in that season. And then there are other things that I'm like, this is going to be it, man. Mm -hmm. I just feel like there's a burden on my heart to share this thing. And, um, I can't wait to see what it's going to do and how, and the way it's going to change. And it's like, pushing a rock up a hill and it's not because people are checked out and grumpy and cynical. It's just really, really hard for our community to take this thing, you know, and it's a pain, it's like a, just how different children have different needs. And this one learns this really easily, but this one needs a lot of help. Um, and having a, having systems or communal environments in which you can, Get an accurate relational read on those things and yeah. implement them before it's too late, I think, is a helpful way to understand whether or not the pulpit's actually communicating,
1: yeah. Um, in a conversation that I had with uh, with tim Chadic, he he was, speaks about the same sort of thing. And he's like, it's not enough to just say it from the pulpit, you know? and And we all of us believe in the power of God's word. But that's not necessarily how God's word always works. It's not just that you you say it once and and then it is. Yeah. I, I love this, like this filter if process. Only.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. If only, but it's gotta be, you know, like a V60, you know, <laughs> like it's gotta filter through, goes down the funnel, and yep. and then as the water goes through every single grain, then maybe there's some kind of change.
0: Yeah. Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Mm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yep. 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 Um. Okay. So thank you. And cause yeah, cause I noticed that, yeah, uh, you, the the your book came out and then you did a teaching series about it afterwards. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes when pastors write books, it's cause they did a sermon series that they liked. So then they just kind of send the manuscripts, send, yep. send the sermon notes to a ghostwriter, And then it comes out. You obviously didn't do that. So you wrote it first and then preached a series of messages adjacent to it. It seems like. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think it was more like a companion piece maybe yeah. or an appendix to the book. And uh, mostly my motivations for doing it that way were purely creative. I don't like the idea of, and this is not a gripe at anybody who does it this way. Cause I mean, you could throw a rock and hit somebody who knows more than me about this, but, um, uh yes, most of the time if you listen to the preacher and then read the book, you're like, oh, it's just this series. <laughs> and yeah. in some cases word for word, this series. Yeah. Yeah. Um I can with tell a you. A few. Yeah. Of, yeah. With a couple of tweaks to make it link up a little better. Um, which is totally valid because not everybody's listening to the series and maybe more people read the book or vice versa. So it lets it exist in a different kind of um environment which I get. I'm not saying that that's like a, a wrong way to do it. But as, you know, like a creative purist, I just hate the idea of someone sitting down to read the book and not being surprised by the content. It's almost like the teaching series would just have been massive spoilers for the whole book. And I write um, nonfiction the way that I write fiction. You know, I write it intending to create, you know, a linear narrative experience that begins on page one and isn't resolved until the end of the book. And I don't want the way, you know, to me as a novelist, the most important sentences in the book are the first sentence and the last sentence. And I really like, um, putting a lot of, uh, thinking and feeling into that kind of experience where you might remember the opening line and you will remember the closing line. Um, I don't want to put those in a sermon series that would ruin that experience I- of reading the book. Yeah. And not only that, but the way I write is books is not the same way that I write teachings. Um, I write with more of a literary bent it that I sounds really pretentious, but I, I, just write, I guess it's different when you write something, knowing it will be read in front of people. And that's the, the only life it will have, you know, you get up on stage I say the thing out loud and it just goes out into the air or into a podcast. And that's kind of the end of its life. Um, writing is different. It's like tactile, you hold it in your hand and you, you know, you can go back and forth in the text and be like, wait a minute, didn't he say this? And I like creating that kind of experience or thinking through what that experience might be like. So, and I also say things in the book that I might not say in a teaching, um, that are a little more provocative or shocking and not because, you know, like I got to go rogue. I even gave my manuscript of my book to some of our overseers to read. Um, and because I wanted their, um, kind of blessing to be like, he didn't say anything that contradicts the values of our church. And I even had one of my uh, jacket blurbs from the overseers of van city church as a vote of confidence from, you know, like there are people who actually agree with this guy. He's not totally crazy. Um, yeah, I think that for me, aesthetically, those are just two different um, vehicles for communication. I like them to be as uh, uh, to to have those differences so that they can have their unique um, qualities.
1: Yeah, there's a there's a book I've been using it for a few different years um, with kind of a men's fellowship group that I that I do. It's a, a book on proverbs, and. I found out later on, those are based on, you know, a whole series of sermons that the author preached. And then I found those and it's like, oh, cool. Audiobook for free. (laughs) You can just go to the (laughs) website and then scroll back down. And like, it is, I don't see much change at all, at all, at all between what was written. And again, that's fine. Totally. Yeah. It, they're good sermons and it's a good book and it served it served me and a bunch of guys very very well. For these and
0: in both it sounds like in both ways you you enjoyed it as a book and you enjoyed it as a sermon so there yeah, you go.
1: Certainly did. Certainly did. Okay, so speaking of listening speaking of listening back to things. So I know that you're in the practice of listening back to your sermons. Maybe kind of as a, a you know, wrapping this up or kind of second to last question, like as you listen back to your sermons now in 2023, um, what is it that you hear now that you think I want to improve in that? what are you how are you still trying to improve now? What's something that you haven't fixed yet?
0: Well, mostly nowadays, the improvements that I'm uh, on which I focus are idiosyncratic in nature, you know th- they're delivery things. And that's not to say like, oh, I've mastered the art of teaching the theology in the Bible. I have not uh, yeah. by any means. So that is just a lifelong process. I'm taking that as a given that I'm always setting out to learn um, how to uh, instruct people to follow Jesus better and better all the time. I assume that there's always room for growth, that I'll never master it, and that I can get better at that, learn new ways. And that mostly comes from, you know, you read more, you listen to more people. Um, But in terms of delivery, as an orator, I guess you would say, you, you will only... Find your idiosyncrasies and eliminate them by listening to yourself. Uh, most people do not realize that they have I- idiosyncratic tendencies until they hear themselves. So I tell all my teaching students, um, you need, you have to, you have to listen back to yourself, and then I want to hear your feedback on yourself. Okay. And they say things like, "What the heck? I had no idea." I said, "Uh," so many times, you know, in, in these little gaps, uh, 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 and you know, well, your audience hears it. And if you don't like it, then that's a thing that you, you can consciously go in and begin to eliminate, you know, or their delivery patterns. You know, there was a student of mine that was like, did a great job, um, was a natural, uh, but she would kind of come to the end of, uh, you know, a segment of teaching pause take a deep breath and then begin the next one. So it begins to sound in the room as if she's reading paragraphs. You know, each one kind of, there's a, a lilt to her voice in the opening and then a conclusive decrescendo at the end of the sentence that kind of infers conclusion. And so I'm telling her, you know, it it sounds a bit like you start a unit of thought, you finish it. You start a unit of thought, you finish it. And that becomes a, a tad repetitive it's not nothing like this is the end of the world. I'm just saying if you want to get better all the time, um, you have to listen to yourself. She listens back to herself. Say, Oh my God, I had no idea I was doing that. So now you're consciously practicing on how to eliminate those things for me personally. And I realize people are really different on this and you know, like they have different methods of writing teachings. Um, I'm a manuscript person. So I, say nearly word for word exactly what I write down every single week, right down to punchlines and deliveries and pacing and all that stuff. So for me, and what I teach my students is, I believe good teaching is always good writing first. And the best way that you can improve your teaching before you're an orator, um, the content, the pacing, the The humor, the balance, the trajectory, the arc of your teaching is always to learn to write better. You know, Stephen King has this great quote where he says, if you want to be a writer, there's two things that are fundamental and non-negotiable. And that's that you have to read a lot and you have to write a lot. And if you don't want to do both of those things, you cannot be a writer. Hmm. And I tell them the same thing, that if you want to be a good teacher, you have to learn to become a better writer. And for that, you have to read a lot. And you have to write a lot, which means, you know, uh, anytime you have an opportunity to come up and bring information to the people, think about it beforehand, write it down. You know, I have my um, apprentices of teaching, even if they're coming up to like talk about the announcements or the giving for that week, think about a way that you can deliver that in a meaningful way. Don't um, freestyle it, write something down, go through it, practice it, get up there and see what works and what doesn't work. Take every opportunity that you have to refine the art of your communication. And that all starts with, for me, uh, writing. And you can find out the kind of teacher you are in your writing as well by leaning on what works and what doesn't work. You know, in the beginning, I listened to uh, nonstop pastors and teachers to find what I wanted to do and didn't want to do. Like, oh, I like the way this guy does this. I like the way this lady communicates this. I like... Um, this kind of delivery. I like this kind of humor and trying to cobble them together with my own personality. But eventually that became less. I mean, I still listen to, of course, Bible teachers all the time because I'm co- trying to constantly learn. But now who I listen to mostly to learn um, uh, to grow as a teacher are stand up comedians and okay. um, reading writers. You know, um, stand up comedians have mastered the art of public speaking um, in a way that brings people through a meaningful, especially like, you know, the art of the stand-up special where there's almost like a a narrative and a linear sequence and a a stringing together of things where you're saying something that you wrote down at some point and memorized, but you have to sound like you didn't write it down and memorize it.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. The thought just occurred
0: to me. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Oh, no, it's like the comedians say uh, they're they're as if the thought just occurred to them.
0: Yeah, totally. But but it
1: it occurred to them 10 months ago. Yes. And they've
0: done it lots of times, you know, and they've worked, they've refined it. So it's, I think that willingness to continue to draw from all kinds of sources to, to be, I don't want to say be hard on yourself, but to, um, constantly reassess your technique and critique, um, find ways that you can improve rather than settle into a groove. You know, like there are people who have been pastors for so much longer than I have. I'm on like year eight now or year nine, And so I've done quite literally hundreds of Bible teachings. um, And it's really easy to feel as if like, dude, I know how to do a Bible. I've done hundreds of them. I'll just keep doing the same thing. It mostly works. Every now and then something doesn't, and I'll figure it out. But I would like to constantly get better. And I kind of want to, you know, artistically try to reinvent myself. Not like to throw away something that's working, but to you know find new ways as i grow as a disciple of jesus to reflect that in the way that i teach as well i don't want to sound exactly like i sounded year 1 of our church when we're on year 10 you know i want the journey of my discipleship reflected in the way i communicate the bible and theology
1: yeah yeah I, i'm i'm curious like what stand up comedians you think do a good job but uh, if you don't want to name any on on this and that's fine
0: Oh, I'm totally fine to name them, I and mean, you can censor them if you, if you want. <laughs> I think honestly, because uh, you know, in the this day and age, a lot of the stand-up comedians that I have a long-term relationship with and affection for um, have fallen victim to cancel culture. Louis C.K. is an easy example of that whole scandal. Um, but honestly, from the beginnings of my car- career or you know, vocation as a teacher um, to now, the person who's who's been most influential as a public speaker has been Dave Chappelle and because he brings a kind of prophetic cultural critique to his stand-up comedy. Yeah. And there's kind of a, um, a dark humor and a way that he manipulates punchlines to provoke and force the person laughing to also ask questions like, wait, what are we, what yeah. are we laughing at? And what does it mean that we're laughing at it? Um, so I, I think that, you know, he's just a brilliant tactician in terms of writing and delivery. And you don't have to like Dave Chappelle or agree with me at all. But the point is, is that you can draw these meaningful influences from places you might not expect to find them. So, yes, absolutely. Listen to Bible teachers, listen to pastors and, <laughs> yeah. and, and then reach for other places for inspiration as well. You know, I was, was a guy next to me in seminary that was like, I was just really inspired by this song. And I want to find a way to put that, you know, like inspiration in my teaching. But, you know, then he was immediately dismissing himself. Oh, but that's so dumb. Songs, you know, they don't. I better read this Tim Keller book. And uh, and I remember thinking like, oh, that seems really valid. You know, people are inspired by music. There probably is a way to translate. I didn't have the toolbox for it at the time. But there are places that you can go or, or unexpected ways that I think God himself will pour inspiration to you. And, and, and through ways it doesn't even necessarily have to be like, Oh, wow, there's just this, it's always Christian or it's always in complete theological agreement with the way that sure. our teacher communicate. Um, but just constantly wanting to learn and grow from people who are good at what they do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of being inspired by, by music, uh, just the final question is one of the last lines from, from the book. It's uh, it's powerful. It says, "I'd rather be forgotten than remembered for giving in." So, why is that true? And also, where'd you get that line?
0: <laughs> you know where I got it. I That's know where, where you got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, the line comes from a, a song by a Swedish punk rock band called Refused, and the song is called "Summer Holiday Versus Punk Routine." Um, and refuse is a notoriously kind of anti-capitalist punk rock political band, but with a lot of really brilliant rhetoric that goes beyond, um, the political realm and certainly beyond the socio-political commentary on capitalism versus socialism and the stuff that they're on about. Yeah. Um, they're, you know, like, uh, the singer Dennis Lixon, his lyricism is extremely rousing for, Um, those of us who like have roots in the kind of punk rock movement. And that's something that to me, um, when that record came out, the, it's on an album called the shape of punk to come, which was, I think 97 or 98 when it, when that album came out, it changed a lot of our, um, aesthetic perceptions of punk rock music. It's a, a genre defining and defying album. And so that, you know, this is one of my core albums, my life changing albums. It, it is for many of us. Um, I'm, you know, not unique in all the world in that way. And that line in particular, it's my favorite lyric on the record yeah. and something that I've kind of carried around. This sounds so sentimental, but I've carried it around in my heart over the years, if that makes sense. And um, it I totally keep...
1: does because me too. <laughs> me yeah, too. you understand. But you me can relate too. to it. I could not believe. Yeah. Yeah. It. What a yeah. Go on. Sorry.
0: I, you know, I keep a notebook, uh, as I'm writing manuscripts, um, that I have on my person at all times, like by my bedside table in my pocket as I go around. And anytime any little idea comes up to me or a story or a, you know, a, a quote, I just get the thing out and write it down really fast and think like, maybe there's a way to incorporate this into my manuscript, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. So I had a really long series of notes going for death to deconstruction. And I think one day I had the record on. And I just thought of the way that that lyric that had been so meaningful to me for so many years um, so captured the spirit of the book and what I was communicating in a conclusive kind of way that I thought, I wonder if there's a way that I can move it into the narrative in in such a way that... I don't. I don't. Didn't necessarily not because I don't want to attribute to them. I'm happy to celebrate the band all all day long and have throughout my career. Um, but in such a way where it wasn't like you know oh there's a band called Refused and they have a lyric, but more grafted into the spirit of the narrative. Yeah. Um, and I thought like oh what a fun little Easter egg that if anyone like you is reading the book and <laughs> yeah, and they find it they'll go oh yeah yeah heck yeah to that so. I'm glad it's, it's honestly um, encouraging is, is not exactly the word. It's more like satisfying. It's so satisfying when someone goes, I saw it. I see what yeah. you did there. So thank yeah. you. <laughs>
1: well, I think, I think I might name this episode. I'd rather be forgotten than remembered forgiven in because more people should just know that phrase and live that way. You know, it's, I I really appreciate so much about that and you know, there's that other quote from what Count Zinzendorf, maybe you've heard it, you know, it's just, you preach the gospel, you die, and then you're forgotten. And ironically, the only thing I know about Count Zinzendorf is that he said that, you know, so he's, (laughs) strangely, he is remembered for that very, for that very phrase. But yeah, I I, personally, I don't want to, you know, I've, you know, I don't want to, just be remembered for the person who who sold out the person who gave in the person who deconstructed to to use that but i want to be yeah faithful until until the end that's my that's my hope i'm trying to you know i just turned 40 so i'm i'm i realize i'm kind of in the second half of life Mm -hmm. and um i yeah turned 40 last week and then i went to a funeral the very next day so if that doesn't kind of like put you in the right state of mind just kind of thinking like okay how do I want to end this thing? You know, as, as yep. people's grandkids were coming up and telling stories about them, it's like, what I want, if God gives me grandkids, like, what do I want them to remember? And do I want them to, you know, well, grandpa Mike, he took the easy way out. Grandpa Mike, he, he knew shortcuts. Grandpa Mike was, was, was unfaithful. I know. I just want to be a uh, monotonous, monogamous boring, faithful man until the day I die. That's what I want. And that's, yeah, that's a, a that's, good goal.
0: And I, that's something that I've been learning more and more about as, you know, um, I'm the same age as you and in kind of beginnings of second half of life stuff. Um, but I've always had this kind of fast, I know this sounds so uh, dark, but this fascination with just the idea of death um, and, and our own mortality. You know, someone told me this funny story recently about going to... Uh, someone from our church went to an Ash Wednesday gathering at another church invited by a friend. And they were like, Oh yeah, sure. I'll come with you. And the friend was just absolutely blown away by how you know, reflective and somber. And they were just like, you know, they they straight up said one day you're going to die. And I've just never heard this stuff in church. Hmm. And the person from our church was like, what? We, we say that every Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, but I do think that uh, my own dark humor aside that an awareness of your own mortality and, and your own finiteness becomes not only an encouragement and a sobering reminder of who you are and what you will be. But it's also freeing in a way. It's it's been the thing that's helped me most embrace the mundanity of many aspects of my life. You know, at a younger age, I thought maybe I'd be a, you know, a famous celebrated artist or, you know, punk rock star or some kind of thing. Um, And now, you know, I've I've got kids and a family and I live on a quiet street and preach with the same group of people every week. And um, there is a beauty in the rhythmic, consistency of faithfulness that is largely missing from, um, our own kind of idea of our own hype. There's a reason I think that deconstruction, the idea of deconstruction so thrives on social media. Um, it, it seems as if it's often a method one takes up to self-actualize. I'm here, I matter, I'm going to throw away the thing that I was given and do my own thing instead. And um, there are, of course, many people who go on very painful, quiet deconstruction journeys, and it's not about self-celebration. But I think, you know, deconstruction is a phenomenon that's mostly entirely localized in the West and especially in America and especially amongst white affluent millennials. Um, And that's not my cynicism that there's data to back that up. Christian movement continues to thrive all around the world. And the Christian movement is predominantly not affluent white millennials, um, and not or, or males for that matter. So, um, there's this idea that, oh, everyone's deconstructing, but it's really because deconstruction has been given such a megaphone through social media. And because, um, the, you know, the stereotype is, well, when you deconstruct, you get right there on social media and you make a big, brave, Um, post about it. You know, my book opens with kind of a satire of an actual famous person who deconstructed on Instagram, um, with, you know, and I, I poke obvious fun at the, the ridiculousness of it all. But in a way it's that kind of like, I'm here, I'm something I matter, you know, like I don't, I, you don't do this quietly because you want an audience. Um, and, uh, the idea of quiet faithfulness is so lost i think uh, on an entire generation if not on an entire kind of swath of a, especially american christianity um and the idea that you know from ashes you came or from dust you came to dust you will return is a sobering reminder of well you know what difference does it make i i would now at this point in my life be contented with no one remembering that i wrote stuff down or sang any songs but here was a man who loved Jesus and loved his family well. Um, super broken, screwed up, made a lot of mistakes, um, but through it all, he he was really trying and he did not compromise.
1: Yeah, I think it's a, in the Gospel of John or perhaps it's Mark, but he Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist, and it says that you know um, he did he performed no miracles, but everything that he said about about me was true. Um, and I think that'd be a great
0: tombstone verse, you know? That is a great one. I'm going to steal that. I never thought about that. That's really yeah, like,
1: And again, I'd love to perform a miracle. I, I'm halfway through my life. I haven't performed one yet, but I would just love to be just like a You're not personal. trying.
0: That's the problem. <laughs>
1: That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Just to, to say true things about Jesus until the day I die. I would, yes. I would love that. Yeah. All right. On Correct. that, we've come to the inevitability of our death. I, don't, I think this is a good end
0: of the podcast. Yep. Uh, you're going to die. Thanks for listening.
1: Yeah. But mezzo more. Um, I hope you, I hope the listeners of the podcast, that uh, this helps you in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. Thanks, Josh. Thanks,
0: dude. Yeah. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. It was fun.
1: A real joy. All right. Well, thanks so much, Josh. That was a, a good, long interview. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate you making time for me and for us. We've got a newsletter that is going to be coming out more regularly in the future. I read a lot of stuff about this type of thing. I read a lot about preaching, I read a lot about sermon delivery, and what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be compiling some of the month's best online content that I've come across about sermon prep, about collaboration, about communicating to the current concerns of the culture. And I'm going to be putting them together in kind of a, 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 an amalgamated, collected list of links for for you and so how you sign up for our newsletter is you go to expositorscollective.com you scroll down to the bottom of the page and there's a button there for you to push and i'm not going to spam your inboxes but i'm just going to kind of collect some things that i've found on the internet that month that i think that you might like Because I tell you, if you made it all the way to the end of this podcast, there's something about you that wants to grow in personal study and public proclamation of God's word. And I want to help you do that. So sign up for our newsletter and you'll get kind of a, a monthly collection of things that I think might help you. Okay, I hope that this podcast, that newsletter, training events in Austin and Indianapolis, I hope they all work together to help you grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. See you next Tuesday.